good it is to dwell together. Welcome to Sunday Afternoon, Gothamites. You are listening to WBAI Beyond the Pale, 99.5 on your FM dial, streaming live on the internet at WBAI.org. Beyond the Pale, your destination for politics and culture on the cutting edge with a Jewish twist. Visit our website, uh, beyondthepale.org, or an archive of previous shows, which you may also find through the iTunes Music Store. You may also find the Pacifica Radio app through which you can access Pacifica Radio in five markets throughout the country. You had listened to Hine Matov, as rendered by Pete Seeger, Theodore Bikel, and Rashid Hussein. And this week we're going to look back on the life of Pete Seeger, as well as Shulamit Aloni, two greats who departed to the next world this past week. And we will also look at some recent cultural offerings, a new book by Jonathan Kirsch, and several new films featured at the recent Jewish Film Festival. And Pete Seeger himself, born in 1919, um, lived approximately six months after the passing of his wife, and Pete Seeker may rightly be considered the American conscience of the 20th century. Um, a man from Puritan and German Calvinist stock um, who dedicated his life to the promulgation of folk music and American traditional music, about whom it can be said that he fashioned the offerings of three songs that will live perhaps for centuries, Turn, 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 If I Had a Hammer, and of course We Shall Overcome. His musical group, The Weavers, one of the only American musical groups that had a number one in the 1950s, Goodnight Irene, 1952, that nevertheless was blacklisted. Pete Seeger was kept off of the airwaves for approximately 20 years and uh, tirelessly continued his dedication to 
common good. And now we turn to Jonathan Kirsch, who we would like to welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Mr. Kirsch. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you so much that you are joining us. The title of your book, The Short Strange Life of Herschel Grinspan, A Boy Avenger, A Nazi Diplomat, and a Murder in Paris, brought out by Liveright Press. Mr. Kirsch, you have several titles to your credit, fascinating works indeed. Um, if I can mention a couple of them for our audience, um, A History of the End of the World, Grand Inquisitor's Manual, Harlot by the Side of the Road, Forbidden Tales of the Bible, and God Against the Gods, History of the War Between Monotheism and Polytheism. So many of your books, if not all, Mr. Kirsch, have dealt with the Bible. Is Mr. Greenspan in some sense a mythical, biblical figure? Please inform the audience how you came to this striking topic. Well, I started writing about the Bible out of a passionate personal interest and curiosity about the the real world and the real people behind the biblical text. My books are not inspirational uh, or religious books, they're historical books, and they ask who are the people who wrote these texts that we continue to cherish, and why did they write them, and what did they use these writings for? So Forbidden Tales of the Bible looks at uh, the Hebrew Bible, uh, a History of the End of the World looks at uh, the Book of Revelation from the New Testament. And as I continue to write books, I kind of move forward in history. The Grand Inquisitor's Manual is about the, the Inquisition, which was another collision between religion and history. But there's really a special story behind uh, my new book about Herschel Grinspan. I learned the story of Herschel Grinspan from my own father, who was an author uh, of, of good, great accomplishment, and he was planning to write a novel about the events in Herschel Grinspan's life, uh, precisely because they are so inherently dramatic. Uh, Herschel Grinspan led a life that reads like a thriller, and my dad intended to write a novel uh, inspired by those events. Uh, tragically, he did not live long enough to do that, so when I was looking for a new book project uh, after writing the Grand Inquisitor's novel, I returned to a subject that I had first learned about from my own father, and I wrote the story of Herschel Grinspan, in a sense, the book that he intended to write, except that my book is a book of history and biography, not a book of uh, fiction. And but, Mr. To, but to address your question, yes, indeed, he, he embodies many of the qualities, heroic qualities and some less heroic qualities, that we find in many biblical stories of heroism and um, uh, armed struggle on behalf of the Jewish people. Indeed. If you would, for the benefit of our audience, as the short, strange life of Herschel Greenspan is not necessarily household information, please elaborate briefly the story of Herschel Greenspan. I'd be delighted to. And, and the, the fact that he is as obscure as he is is part of the story. Uh, you know, uh, the study of the Holocaust has prompted a restless search for examples of Jewish armed resistance, Jewish heroism in the face of persecution. Uh, we, we look for and honor the resistors, 
But Herschel Grinspan, who is among the very first armed Jewish resistors to Nazism, has been wholly written out of our history. And that's the, the principal question that I addressed in my book. Herschel Grinspan was a young Polish Jewish uh, boy who was living in Germany during the Hitler era. Uh, his family managed to smuggle him out of Germany, and he found refuge in Paris. Uh, in 1938, Hitler escalated his war against the Jews by deporting 12,000 Polish Jews, including Herschel's parents, and essentially just dumping them into no man's land between Germany and Poland. Uh, Herschel, living in relative safety in Paris, read about these events in the press and was distraught that the world was doing nothing about the persecution of the Jews in Germany. Uh, and so he took a pistol. He uh, managed to gain entry to the German embassy in Paris. He, he withdrew his pistol from under his coat, and he declared in the name of the 12,000 Jews and fired five shots at a Nazi diplomat. Uh, that was his uh, act of resistance or his crime, depending on how you looked at it. And the remarkable aftermath of that act of defiance to the Nazis is what my book is about. And it culminates, of course, and causes us to revisit the events of Kristallnacht, which, as you note, is still the subject of debate among historians, whether or not this signified a spontaneous overreach that to some extent backfired and therefore conditioned the process of genocide during the war to be a secret action under the cover, under the cloak of warfare, as opposed to a publicly visible outright event, which indeed Kristallnacht was. How does revisiting the story of Greenspan shed light on a different understanding of those events and the onset of the Holocaust? Well, first I have to uh, compliment you on astutely uh, reminding me of, of the immediate aftermath of, of Herschel's uh, act of defiance. As you correctly pointed out, on the day that his victim died, uh, Hitler and Goebbels set into motion the events of Kristallnacht, which most uh, historians recognize as a escalation of Hitler's program of persecution. Until 1938, the, the goal of the Nazi regime was to make life in Germany for Jews so odious and dangerous and degrading that they would leave on their own uh, initiative. He wanted to free Germany or cleanse Germany of its Jewish population by encouraging them to leave. He was very frustrated that they weren't leaving fast enough or in greater, great enough numbers. So the plan was concocted to escalate the war against the Jews by taking it to the streets of Germany and organizing uh, a, a a night of violence against Jews and of destruction of Jewish property. That is Kristallnacht. Now, I, in the debate on whether this was a spontaneous upwelling of German anti-Semitism or whether it was a carefully orchestrated act of policy <clears throat> by, the German by the German government, I am on the side, as are most historians, uh, that it was carefully planned, planned well in advance of the uh, assassination of the German diplomat by Grinspan, and in fact, all that Herschel Grinspan did was provide them with a convenient pretext to carry out an act that they had been planning for many years. 
one of the points that I explore in my book is that the Nazis were, in fact, horrified by what happened when they unleashed Kristallnacht because it resulted in violence on the streets, it resulted in public disorder, in um, acts of crime that they did not countenance, that they would not approve of. Uh, it, interestingly, the only people who were prosecuted for misconduct on Kristallnacht were uh, German men who sexually molested Jewish women, which was a race crime under Nazi law. Uh, they were perfectly content with having Jews murdered, but they were not willing to... Uh, overlook acts of sexual violence uh, against Jewish women. Uh, Goering scolded Goebbels in a very notable conference for which we have the minutes, where he said, I wish you had killed more Jews and caused less property damage. Uh, and that was the reason that Kristallnacht can be seen as a failed experiment. The Nazis decided, just as you have suggested in your question, that they would take the destruction of the Jews into secret. They would put it in behind barbed wire or in secret killing pits in the forests or in the ravines of, of occupied Europe. Uh, it was definitely the next step in the uh, progression towards the Holocaust as we know it, uh, but it was an example of a failed policy which was corrected you might say, at Auschwitz, and, uh, and with, uh, as we all know now, with catastrophic consequences for the Jewish people. And as you remarked, Grinspan served as a convenient pretext for a process planned well in advance and therefore gives him a somewhat questionable status historically. And, of course, within a variety of circles, there are mutual cross-accusations suggesting that he was a kind of double agent on behalf of the Gestapo, and then, of course, the Nazi claim that he was at the center of some larger conspiracy for which there is little evidence. And you make the comparison, interestingly, with Lee Harvey Oswald at the beginning of your book, that somehow he was a patsy, and yet it, there doesn't seem to be definitive evidence uh, to support any link with a larger context. Well, I in invoke the name of Lee Harvey Oswald for, for several reasons, and one of which is to show the reader that there, ha there was as much conspiracy theory attaching to the Grinspan case in 1938, at the time it, it took place, as there has been uh, that is attached to the uh, Kennedy assassination. This is a familiar phenomenon to American readers. Conspiracies within conspiracies, conspiracies that point in every direction, uh, to explain the assassination of JFK is, is a familiar concept. Precisely the same thing happened, as you've suggested, in the 30s and 40s when the Grinspan case came to light. The Nazis saw him as the cat's paw of an international Jewish conspiracy. But by the way, they were convinced ideologically that everything, everything in the world was the result of Jewish conspiracy. So it was part of their worldview, kind of a demented worldview. But even in the Jewish community, people who saw the connection between the assassination in Paris and the events of Kristallnacht looked on Herschel Grinspan and not as a hero of the Jewish people, but as a catastrophe for the Jewish people. This is one of the reasons, I argue in my book, that he has been written out of Jewish history. People have wondered, 
if he br- did not accelerate or bring down on the heads of the of the Jews of Germany, something much worse than would have happened if he hadn't assassinated uh, a German diplomat as an act of protest. In sum, there is no evidence whatsoever that he was either an agent for a Jewish conspiracy or, as some have suggested, an agent of a Nazi conspiracy. I think he was an individual uh, who was tormented by the fate of, uh, his, of his people and specifically by the fate of his mother and father and his brother and sister, and so took it upon himself to call the world's attention to the suffering of the Jews with a dramatic act. Uh, and yet the, the flesh and blood Herschel Grinspan disappears into these multiple overlapping conspiracies such that it's very hard to tease out his real fate, his real uh, circumstances at the time these events were unfolding. It's quite fascinating that, to some extent, the account you give in your book is a restoration project of Grinspan and the pantheon of heroes of armed resistance, even if he was only a lone gunman. At the same time you mentioned, I mean, during this labyrinthine imprisonment period that goes from occupied France to Germany during the war, you write that Herschel himself forfeited his claim to the role of heroic avenger when he essentially offered the assassination of Amrat as a homosexual crime passionnel. This, at the same time, was an ingenious ploy to guarantee his own survival, to thwart Nazi designs for a show trial. On the other hand, this is also an argument why he has been kept out of Jewish history and memory after the war. And at the same time, it appears also to not be the subject of definitive judgment for historians whether indeed there was a liaison between Grinspan and Fumrath. If you would elaborate on oh, how that complicates the picture. And this, this of course, is the greatest irony in, his, in a life, a young life, full of irony. You know, I, I might pause to say he was only 17 when he assassinated the German diplomat von Rott, uh, and he packed a lot of uh, meaning, historical meaning, into those few years of life. When he was arrested at the German embassy for the crime of murder, having shot the German ambassador, he was uh, facing trial in the French courts, and his French attorney suggested to him that no French jury would acquit him if he said that he murdered a German diplomat as an act of political protest because the French were terrified of another war with Germany. And the, the lawyer himself suggested to Grinspan that if he made it an act of personal or private vengeance for a sexual crime, the, the homosexual seduction uh, of a young boy, that the French jury could see it as a private affair, not a political affair, and might... Uh, quit him. Uh, Herschel told his French lawyer that he would not do that, uh, that he did it, he, he carried out his act of violence as a political protest, and he was going to proclaim that in court. Now, he never went to trial in France because, just as the French feared, uh, Germany invaded France and conquered it and occupied it, and on the arrest list of the invading army, uh, prisoner number one was Herschel Grinspan, because Hitler and Goebbels were obsessed with using young Herschel Grinspan 
as the star in a propaganda show trial in which they hope to prove to the world that their rationale for hating and killing Jews was justified because of this imaginary Jewish conspiracy. They were going to make Herschel the um, defendant in a show trial who would be made to represent all Jews uh, and the hatefulness of all Jews as they saw it. Herschel, uh, as young as he was, <clears throat> understood that he was about to be uh, used for propaganda purposes by the Nazis and, and seemed to understand that this was a, uh, a trial that would be used to justify ever greater acts of violence against the Jews. And he remembered what his French lawyer had told him, and he understood that if he could frighten the Nazis into thinking that he was going to ruin their show trial by accusing the victim of homosexual uh, acts against a Jewish boy, that he would deny them the, the propaganda coup that they were seeking. So he did. we have good historic evidence that he did, in fact, threaten that, to do this uh, to his Nazi interrogators. He told the Gestapo that if you put me on trial, I will testify that Vom Rott was a homosexual predator and that he preyed on young Jewish boys, including me. Uh, this we know this because in the records, the archives of the Nazi government, uh, a, a memo was sent directly to Hitler to make him aware that Grinspan was going to testify in this manner and did he still want the trial. And Hitler recognized that he had been trumped by this young Jewish boy uh, and decided to cancel the trial. So the trial was never held. And that's what I characterize in my book as his ultimate victory against the Nazis and his ultimate act of courage, because he knew he was consigning himself or condemning himself to death if he was no longer useful to the Nazis. Indeed. And as a final question, Mr. Kirsch, do you think you will return to the period of World War II and the Holocaust for your future work, or will you move on elsewhere? Well, I, I, I will say with all honesty that I, I deal with the Holocaust with the greatest respect and I would say even caution. I think it's very important to tell Holocaust stories that can be rigorously documented that are historical and biographical. If I find another story that is, is not deeply familiar to the reading public but can be very meticulously documented, I certainly would uh, relish telling it again. But I feel that people who write about the Holocaust need to have their endnotes, their footnotes, their bibliographies uh, because we live in a world today where there, there are Holocaust deniers who question everything that's written about the Holocaust, uh, and, and I feel that it's our duty to tell stories that we can document. This happens to be a story that was richly documented in the archives of the Nazis themselves. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. Kirsch. Thank you for uh, allowing me to discuss this with you. I've been very grateful to you. Okay. You are listening to Beyond the Pale. 99.5 FM, WBAI.org, beyondthepale.org. And now, we also remember this week the passing of Shulamit Aloni, widely regarded as the godmother of social democracy in Israel. You have a and I can make peace, you know, as I told you yesterday, not today, not tomorrow, and it's nothing new. The whole world knows that we speak the same language, we have the same principles. In many ways, I think she's a braver woman 
And I'm saying this not because she's your mother, or because she's my friend. No, but but I, because I believe so. You never gave up. You were never no. intimidated. And I think that we have in common. I'm never yeah, intimidated. I know. I know. Well, they tried twice to kill me, but now I'm not Maybe afraid. the same people who tried to kill me. I believe so. Yes, they don't understand. The issue is... You've been listening to a discussion with Shulamit Aloni and Hanan Ashrawi about the prospects for peace in Israel. Shulamit Aloni fought in the Palmach in the War of Independence. She served 28 years as a member of parliament, and she created the Meretz Party, uh, an offshoot of the Labor Party during the 1960s, which was really a coalition of the right secularists in Shinui and the left liberal socialist Mapam. She later served as Minister of Education under Yitzhak Rabin. And one can rightfully say that her party merits served as a cornerstone of the coalition that led to the Rabin government and ultimately the peace treaties with the Oslo Accords and the Kingdom of Jordan. A quote from her son, Udi Aloni, who himself is a thinker and filmmaker, and the clip you listened to came from his film Local Angel, which we'll revisit again shortly, is that I absurdly believe that as long as she, referring to his mother, remains a Zionist, Zionism has a chance of being humanistic. And a quote from Yossi Balin, her successor as leader of the Meretz Party, the chief negotiator of the Oslo Accords, regarding the legacy of Shulamit Aloni. It is hard to understand nowadays how little discourse on the issues of rights existed before Aloni brought this issue to the forefront of Israeli society. Collectivism ruled, both collectivism driven by socialist reasons and that stemming from nationalistic considerations. The right and the left both viewed the individual only as a tool in their greater struggles. Any personal demand for raising the standard of living, for education, or for housing was seen as egoistic. People were ashamed to stand up and demand their legal rights from the establishment. And when their fury could no longer be contained, some resorted at times to violent acts against the bureaucrat sitting behind his desk. What did not exist was a situation in which a person knows exactly what he deserves as a matter of law, asks for it from the establishment, and either receives it or appeals the decision to a higher political or legal venue. It was Aloni who told the Israeli public that they had rights and that they can insist on having these rights respected because the human being stands at the center of existence, even if an individual's personal fulfillment can only be achieved through and within the boundaries of the society in which he or she lives. Roads and oh, yes. an encounter oh, that you had day, with a with a guard. Yeah. Okay, one day I was driving on this way on this beautiful road, and I saw a young soldier stopping a car and asked the person to leave the car, and he wanted to take it. Yeah. I asked him, what's the problem? And he said that he is a Palestinian and he's not allowed to ride on this road. So I said, how can he know it? Because there is no sign. And he wanted to get from one place to another with his car. 
present, you know, with a beautiful smile. Do I want that an anti-Semitic journalist or photographer will take a picture on a kind of a sign like this, that it's a road only for Jews, and then the whole world will know that we have apartheid? So now I understand why there is no sign, and everyone has to know by himself that he, not being a Jew, has no right to ride on this road. Now, just imagine it. And this is not the worst thing which we are facing in the occupied territories. I understand that the people were very, in, in your country, the Jewish people, the Jewish community, or whoever they are, didn't like to know or didn't like the word apartheid because it reminds them South Africa. But we don't have another word to explain what we are doing there. In fact, there was an article in Haaretz that I read the other day where the author said the oppression of the Palestinians is terrible. It's absolutely terrible. It should be opposed, but it's not apartheid. What is the other word they can use? Right, exactly. If they cannot move from one place to another, if they are closed by walls and by, you know, closing everything, and as I said, almost every village and every town is a kind of a detention camp because they cannot really leave the place. And all the, the roads are closed in a certain way, and they can only walk, and to walk around around the, the, the fields or another way. So people don't like the word apartheid. Because they remember South Africa, but I don't know another word. So what, what they, they would rather us to say that it's pure racism, it's better. They would like it better to say that it's pure racism and people have to be separate. The Jewish community, who speaks so highly of the Jewish values, and I respect the Jewish values, and I feel very sorry that we don't respect the Jewish the values, the real Jewish values, according to what the Jewish prophets were talking about. Maybe you have another world. So let them offer it to Jimmy Carter and to me. I don't have in English another world. I accept saying that pure racism and, and hatred and oppression and depression and all, whatever you want. We're speaking with former member of the Israeli Knesset with the Merits Party, Shulamit Aloni, and about an essay that she wrote in response to the furor surrounding former President Jimmy Carter's new book, Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid. And, of course, that word apartheid is what has... Yeah, because they remember incredible condemnation. Right. I have to. I have to add something. The, the American jury feels very strong against the apartheid which was in South Africa, but one has to know that Israel had very good relations with South Africa during the time where the whole world bound them. I would rather have the Jewish community to be more more sophisticated and to study the, the facts. And even if they don't like the world, they should not like the situation. And let them say something about the situation. 
they don't have always surprises, but we make mistakes. It would be a great help to Israel once the Jewish people and the Jewish community and the Jewish leaders in the States and in other places will say to the Israeli government and to the Israeli police and to the Israeli army to behave and to start to be a liberal society, at least a democratic society, at least a humanistic society. It's high time to speak about it openly. You've been listening to an archival interview with Shulamit Aloni by our colleagues here at Beyond the Pale from several years ago in the wake of the discussion regarding the applicability of the term apartheid to conditions in Israel. And we have another clip for you to hear of Aloni. Well, well, it's very difficult to feel well nowadays. It is not the first time. No. I would like to come to visit you. But they <laughs> welcome, but I, I can say come, come, but they won't let you. It's a shame. It's, it's a shame. What the Israeli people should do in order for the Palestinians to forgive us for all the wrongdoing we did, in the last 50 years. <laughs> we have to return back to the peace of the brave, which I had signed with my partner, Rabin, which means that two states are living together side by side. Not only for me and for you, but for our children and your children. Not only for that, not only for the Israelis, not only for the Palestinians, but the, for the whole security and stability in the Middle East. If Rabin was, wouldn't be uh, assassinated, you think that now we would have peace, yeah. maybe? I'm sure. Definitely. Yes. Definitely. Definitely, because in the last we few lost. weeks of his life, he was completely convinced that this Because today. he was convinced. When I was a small boy, I was living, you know where, in uh, in Magaribiyat, Moroccan gates. Yes, beside yeah. Wollongong. Yeah. Definitely, I had to pray there more than all of you. <laughs> because well, every if, day, if you are talking about us, yes. <laughs> even more than the, uh, than the rabbis. <laughs> because every day I used to go to uh, stay with them, and my two hours, one hour, three hours, and my uncle used to come to take me. Every day. And... Uh, we were playing with the uh, with the Israel, Israel, uh, with the Jewish people 
uh, as friends because we are beside the the uh, the Jewish quarter during that period. And for your information, we never say he's a Jew. Another excerpt from Udi Aloni's film Local Angel. Did you recognize the voice, listeners? Indeed, that was Yasser Arafat. Shulamit Aloni paid a visit to the Palestinian leader whilst he was more or less under siege during the Second Intifada. And that discussion, quite rightly considered as historic, dealing with perhaps the great historical what-if of the Middle East during the 1990s, what if Yitzhak Rabin had not been assassinated? You are listening to Beyond the Pale, WBAI 99.5 FM in New York. And now we are going to turn to the recently completed New York Jewish Film Festival, which occurs every year in the month of February at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. It is curated and organized by the Jewish Museum of New York at 92nd Street and 5th Avenue. This year there were a number of striking films that came out of Europe that dealt with several important historical figures. And first we're going to turn to, coincidentally, a title using the same as the book on Herschel Greenspan, The Strange Life, this time of an Austrian psychoanalyst, Wilhelm Reich. Reich is perhaps unique in the annals of the great intellectual emigration from Europe to the U.S. in the wake of Hitler, in that he ultimately met a demise in a U.S. federal prison. He was caught up in the McCarthy era, but it was really his innovations in psychoanalytic therapy that raised the ire of the authorities. And indeed, the film itself engages the question of whether or not he not only was spied upon, but whether even some of his closest associates had a role um, in his demise. Now, Reich was an early associate of Sigmund Freud in Vienna, but from the beginning, he followed his impulse to the corporeal aspects, the bodily manifestations of neurosis, and not merely their intellectual treatment through the talking cure. And therefore, Reich can uh, be considered, in some sense, the father of primal scream therapy, bioenergetic analysis, gestalt therapy, all therapies dealing with a holistic central role of the body have their origin in his departure from orthodox Freudianism. Now, in particular, he believed in the sexual roots of neurosis and believed in the therapeutic potential of what he called orgastic potency. And in the United States, uh, he coined the term orgone as a kind of energy related to orgasm, and he built orgone accumulators, 
devices that patients sat inside to harness health benefits. And these were indeed, for a time, greatly admired by writers and intellectuals. And in the media, this notoriety led to the FDA obtaining an injunction against the shipment of these, believing that essentially these were fraudulent. And indeed, he was imprisoned where he did meet his demise. Please have a listen to some of the film. I have a warrant for your arrest on the charge of disobeying a court order. Dr. Reich has been renting out these boxes despite a court order expressly forbidding him to do so. A sex guru. I would like you to do a psychiatric examination on Dr. Reich. Is there anything else you want? Make sure he realizes that without an attorney, he's simply digging his own grave. In our life in society, we are taught to fear this. We slowly develop blocks. Your father has fulfilled his dream of studying life as close to nature as possible. Fantastic. How are you doing? Pretty well, I think he's beginning to trust me. Have you found out any more about his sex box? Why do you think you're here? I don't think. I know. Dr. Reck, we've come to check if you're still using the accumulators. Father, please. It's bad enough for them to boycott you as a doctor. Dr. Reck, I would like to understand you. Then read my books. You know, one of those voodoo guys, are you, Doc? Are you following the trial? What chance do I have? The film, an Austrian production by Antonin Svoboda, starring the great Austrian actor, who you may know from Mephisto, as well as other roles, Klaus Maria Brandauer. Therefore, one can rightly see this film as a, an attempt to recuperate um, if not reappropriate, um, a Jewish uh, psychoanalyst forced into exile, convenient for the purposes of contemporary Austrian audiences, who can be portrayed not merely as a victim of the Nazis, but also, in a sense, as a victim of a certain kind of persecution by U.S. American authorities, as indeed this film focuses. Next, we will turn to a striking Franco-German production about the Archbishop of Paris, Jean-Marie Lustiger, Lustiger, who you may or may not have known, began as a Jewish boy from Beijing, Poland. Merci, vous, je vous en prie. 
Hein, le petit curé d'origine juive qui va recevoir la crosse et la mitre à l'endroit même où il a reçu le baptême chrétien, c'est une histoire magnifique. Pourquoi dites-vous d'origine juive, monsieur Bussière ah, Vos parents sont juifs, non Je veux devenir chrétien à part entière. Quel âge aviez-vous lors de votre conversion 14 ans. Ah, je dois avouer que... Et ils ont réagi comment à la découverte de mes origines Donc, Tu sais, ils te prenaient déjà pour un original. Ça les a pas tellement étonnés. Et je suis persuadé que ce qui m'arrive est la volonté de Dieu. J'étais persuadé que d'être né juif me fermait la porte de l'épiscopat français. Qui pouvait imaginer que nous aurions un jour un pape polonais J'avais hâte de vous rencontrer, Ces chaussures me donnent des ailes. Avec l'histoire du curé juif, j'espérais faire du bruit en France. Autant. Gisèle Lustiger assassiné à Auschwitz le 13 février 1943. Gisèle Lustiger assassiné Pas celui que tu t'es permis de faire. Gisèle Lustiger assassiné à Auschwitz. Je regrette de t'avoir fait autant souffrir, mon frère. Mais il le fallait. The crux of this entirely satisfying film is the close relationship, if not partnership, that developed between Jean-Marie Lustiger and Pope John Paul II. Indeed, as to translate, um, and please forgive the French language content of the clip, but some of the important material, a quote directly from this clip, I was born Jewish and so I remain, even if that is acceptable for many. For me, the vocation of Israel is bringing light to the Goyim. That is my hope, and I believe that Christianity is the means for achieving it. John Paul II is pulled into a controversy through his relationship with Jean-Marie Lustiger. He self-consciously promotes him beyond a level that he had not thought possible, namely to the Archbishop in Paris, and then ultimately to a cardinal, the status of a cardinal, which means that he participated in the election of the successor to John Paul II before his death. But the center and the conflict in the film has to do with the controversy surrounding the Carmelite Covenant on the grounds of the Auschwitz concentration camp. And we see the allegiances put to a test of Lustiger with regards to his Jewish roots that he adamantly maintained, even in the face of the desires of the French Jewish officials that hadn't want to retain him, if you like, and John Paul II, who was as adamant about trying to maintain the strength of Christianity behind the Iron Curtain. And he was unable to see at first the conflict anywhere outside of the lens of the impending communist downfall, but ultimately saw the threat to worldwide Christian-Jewish relations. And indeed, another example, really, that the cooperation of John Paul II, not only due to his childhood um, and Jewish friends and his youth in Poland, but also to his adult participation and partnership with Jean-Marie Lustiger that here is restored to the historical record. And another 
recent historical moment of great import deals with the premiere film of the film festival, Friends from France, and now we will have a listen to that. Bonsoir et bienvenue à Odessa. Je peux vous dire qu'il n'y en a pas beaucoup des étudiants qui, comme vous, euh, viennent passer leurs vacances en Union soviétique. Ah, ça, c'est une idée. On n'est pas crédible deux minutes comme couple. Mais tu veux déjà divorcer, c'est ça Choisir un séjour aussi chiant comme voyage de fiançailles. Putain, je vous comprends pas. On est quand même venu ici pour voir des refusniques, pas pour s'emmerder dans un hôtel avec des retraités. Chut. Friends from France, can we see you tonight? I'm Carol, and this is my cousin Jérôme. You want me to tell you about Israel? No, please. Tell me about your life in Paris. Qu'est-ce que vous avez fait hier soir? Bah, on était Hello, we are friends from France. Can we see you tonight? Moi, j'ai été en Israël l'été dernier. Si vous voulez, on peut vous en parler. Hello, we are friends from France. On est complètement manipulé. Je n'ai marre, Carole, j'arrête. Moi, j'ai pas besoin de venir ici pour voir que le monde est horrible. C'est notre secret. Ça regarde personne. Ils sont au courant de tout. Pas This enchanting film uh, centers on an elaborate ruse by a pair of young French-Jewish cousins from Paris who participate in a rigidly organized tourist visit in the 1980s from France to Odessa, then part of the Soviet Union, posing essentially as newlyweds who chose a rather curious option for their honeymoon. The two smuggle in material, literature, items from Israel to give to well-known, prominent refuseniks, most of whom have been separated from their families, subject to repeated imprisonment, and in particular one who is trying to save his carefully preserved memoir from the gulag for the outside world, and indeed uh, It was ultimately published, and the film carefully illustrates the conditions under which refuseniks were subject to so recent uh, in history, and it is surely to be commended, um, especially for the the humorous and um, engaging manner in which the couple pursues um, their actions, although ultimately the film at the end seems to, to some extent, lose its direction and instead focus on the romantic and personal entanglements of the main protagonists of the film and, in a way, loses sight of the larger historical panorama that makes it so engaging to begin with. But nevertheless, um, it's easy to see why this film gained so much attention and received a rather prominent and central platform at the film festival because it is one of the, if not really the first major feature film that engages the plight of the refuseniks as its central topic, at least upon first glance. 
um, a few other, before we cease today and bid adieu on the Super Bowl Sunday, a few other honorable mentions that I would be remiss to not bring to your attention from this recent film festival. Uh, there is a delightful, charming new film from Eitan Fox entitled Cupcakes from Israel. Um, Eitan Fox may be well known to some of our listeners from Yossi and Jagger uh, and some of his other films, a, a great film about modern-day urban life in Tel Aviv called The Bubble. Uh, but Cupcakes is about the Eurovision Song Contest and a group of friends who entirely unwittingly end up becoming the representatives to Israel. The Eurovision Song Contest is actually not inappropriate to be mentioned in the same breath as the Super Bowl because it has almost the same status for European nations and even quasi-European nations as a recent winner was Azerbaijan, and the winner is then the host of the contest for next year. And essentially, it's a combination uh, pop music song contest, but also a kind of Olympics of fashion and style that really captures the imagination of audiences once a year. And Israel has had several victories in the Eurovision Song Contest, perhaps most notably by the transvestite Dana International. And essentially, Fox shows how a group of amateurs who are neighbors on a Tel Aviv street ultimately become kind of heroes and are wrapped up and their personal relationships, it almost becomes a kind of group therapy process and trip for them. So please be on the lookout for Cupcakes when it comes out. And another very striking documentary, also from Israel, by Dan Shadur, called Before the Revolution. And what this film strikingly reveals is the improbably close relationship between the state of Iran under the Shah and the state of Israel. This close relationship is elaborated militarily and culturally and politically. And for example, um, there's the anecdote encountered when the film about the Entebbe rescue is shown in Tehran during a film festival, and it's repeated several times and projected onto open squares in the city, such as its popularity. And it really demonstrates how extreme the pendulum shifted with the fall of Iran and the rise of the uh, dictatorship of the Ayatollahs. We bid you a fond farewell, and please remember to look us up on the Internet, wbai.org, beyondthepale.org. Now, over to Sheldon Walden. Stay tuned for Walden's Pond. I'm Marilyn Kleinberg-Niemark, co-host of Beyond the Pale, WBAI's program of Jewish culture and politics. Join the steady stream of WBAI Buddy monthly subscribers. Fill out the secure online form at our website at WBAI.org to donate $10 or more each month directly from your credit card or checking account. 
In addition to cutting down on on-air fun drive days, WBAI buddies will get a WBAI tote bag and the members' perks cards for discounts around the city. Look for details on the WBAI website. Thanks for your continuing support. And of course, remember to tune in to WBAI 99.5 FM in New York on Sundays at noon to listen to Beyond the Pale.